Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Andrew, and if I haven't met you, welcome. It's great to be here with you. Uh, So we've been talking a lot about joy. We've been in this series on the letter to the Philippian church, uh, and joy is a major theme in uh, this letter. And we've talked uh, specifically about how Christianity uniquely speaks to joy and how Christianity can provide joy even in really difficult circumstances. And, and here's the thing, we, you know, we've been talking about this from a, a Christian perspective, obviously, but everybody wants that kind of joy. I mean, everybody wants enduring, lasting joy because nobody wants to be a joyless person. And uh, maybe you know a joyless person. It's not just not a depressed person. Everybody goes through depression or down, down times. But the joyless person is not only unhappy, uh, but in, in particular feels the need to drag everybody else down with them, right? Come down to my level. Uh, they take everything too seriously, including themselves. They never laugh. They're rarely funny. Maybe you know a joyless person. I was thinking about that this week. And I kind of had this scary thought, which is, you know, a lot of religious people are joyless people. And I know even Christians who are joyless people, right? People who believe and study and memorize a book like Philippians, which is full of joy, but have so little joy in their lived lives that they would probably, without the miraculous, compel anyone to believe Christianity offered anything like a joy-filled Life And Paul the Apostle, who, who wrote Philippians, among other letters written in the New Testament, he experienced the same dynamic. Remember with me, it's just easy to forget, remember with me, the Apostle Paul's greatest opponents in his ministry okay, were not atheists, they were not idolaters, they were not Romans, they were not Jews. For the most part, they were fellow Christians who were going around trying to rob the joy from every church they ever encountered. That's essentially how Paul puts it here in, in this section we're about to, to look through. 
And Paul will give us a metaphor about what their problem is, and he'll say they boast in the wrong things. They boast in the wrong things. And boasting here, not in the sense of gloating, like we often use it, but this word actually has a military connotation for Paul. Um, In other words, the speech you give to the troops or to yourself to get you back in the fight, right? We're going to win. We're worth 10 of them. That's the idea. What gets you out of bed in the morning and back into the fight? What do you show people to prove to them that you're worthy, that you're a good person, that you're a moral person? That's the kind of boast Paul's talking about here. What motivates you? What drives you? And these Christians that he's talking about, and we will get to them in a minute, they're bad boasters. They boast in the wrong things. And they want to suck everybody else into their joyless religiosity. This is what Paul's confronting. And Paul says, no, no. That's, that's this whole passage here. But let me just add on before we move on. This is not just a religious people problem. Okay? It is sometimes. Uh, this joyless religiosity is, it can be expressed in, in religious people. But as humans, we can fall into this trap regardless of what we believe. And I think especially in our modern world, and think about just the internet, which is not all bad, but it's another place now where we need to create a persona to maintain and boast about who and what we are. So what used to be a place for back-to-school pictures and puppies and, right, even those posts are now tempting to, we're tempted now for those to be a projection of who we want other people to think that we are. To boast, in other words. It's exhausting. And it's joyless. And Christianity has a better way, a better way than that. I would not be a good pastor if I thought otherwise. And part of the path to joy we're going to see here means boasting in the right thing. This is what Paul will say. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to the letter of Philippians. You can use your table of contents if you don't know where that is. Chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 1. Let me reread verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's a really awkward way to start a section about joy, isn't it? It's like, what, Paul, what are you talking about? Remember, the Bible, Pastor Tom reminded us of this, I believe it was last week, uh, that the Bible is written for us, but is not written to us. So Paul's speaking to a very specific uh, problem that he sees throughout the churches uh, in the New Testament. And he's reminding this church, essentially, watch out for those joy stealers, those religious teachers that I mentioned earlier. Now, he calls them dogs here, which is, you know, pretty harsh. (laughs) But Paul is very serious about this. And and if you were to read through the New Testament, uh, what you would find is that people who mislead Jesus' followers, like false teachers, people who, who come in and say, I follow Jesus too, and then actively mislead God's people, the harshest language from Jesus himself and from the rest of the New Testament authors is reserved for false teachers. So this is serious. Also, Paul is being a little witty here. He's being, I think he's being a little sarcastic because if you were to read the rabbinical literature at this time, when, when the Jewish people would, would talk about the Gentiles, so those right outside the covenant community, they would often refer to them as those Gentile dogs. So Paul's making a reference here that will lead into his overall point. Now, now why 
Why is he doing that? So, there's a very powerful group of Christians going around to the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches like Philippi, which is primarily God-fears Gentiles or, or outright pagans who've converted now to Christianity. And they're saying to these Christians, hey, if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want to be a part of God's covenant family, you need to become Jewish in your culture and your customs. You need to become a Jew to really be a Christian. And in particular, if you were a male, you need to be circumcised. Now, circumcision, if you're not familiar, is the removal of the male foreskin as a sign that one belongs to the covenant people of God uh, in the Old Testament, as you can see in this diagram here. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You guys, that's so fun. So many heads snapped up. It was like, what? Yeah. Okay, but the point is, the reason we don't show a picture, right, is this is all about flesh. This is why Paul says the mutilators of the flesh, as he calls them. Now, this, this whole conversation around circumcision, kosher diet, was a major theological issue uh, in the early church. In fact, it was probably the theological issue of the early church. And it's a major theme in Paul's ministry, uh, as primarily recorded right in the book of Acts, and in his letters. If you read Paul, this issue comes up over and over and over again. And Paul knows, and the history of the early church confirmed, that God was doing a new thing in the Jesus community. Right, was creating a new circumcision that Paul will actually reference here, a circumcision of the heart promised in the Old Testament through the Holy Spirit. Right, the Holy Spirit, God's very presence in your life. And the Jewish laws like circumcision and kosher, they're no longer necessary because it's clear as day, especially in the book of Acts, that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus without all that stuff. It's not needed anymore. That is, in many respects, one of the main theological arguments of the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, like, listen, God's doing a new thing. But these false teachers are coming around saying, no, 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 no. You cannot follow Jesus until you go back and do this. They're joy stealers. And the Gentiles, for their part, were at times tempted, I think, to listen to them, which may sound surprising to us. Like, why would anyone consider Uh, tacking on a Jewish lifestyle who didn't need to. But remember, they love Jesus. I mean, to the point where they've they've lost family, they've lost money. I mean, this is a costly decision at this time. They love Jesus, and they're reading the Old Testament, maybe some of them for the first time, and there's a lot in there about God's laws, what about the distinctions that made Jews distinct in the ancient world. So maybe this, this is the right thing to do, and plus, Uh, Some scholars wonder if looking a little more Jewish would have given them some legal protection as well. So, in the Roman Empire, the Jews uh, had special religious exemptions uh, that other religious groups did not have in the Roman Empire, especially not early Christians, which the Romans looked at early Christians and said, this is a cult, this is is nothing. So, maybe they were tempted to say, maybe it wouldn't hurt to look a little Jewish, but Paul says, no, don't do that. Verse 3, For we are the circumcision, again now referencing the the heart, the circumcision of the heart, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in your ESV, that's literally boast, and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Paul is so passionate here because he is getting at the very heart of Christianity and the joy-filled life. Paul says, if you boast in anything other than Jesus or anything alongside of Jesus, you have missed the entire thing. The true circumcision, the true faithful follower of God is the one who boasts in Jesus alone and not in themselves, not in what they do or what they don't do or who they are or where they come from. And Paul, by the way, knows this dynamic better than anybody. He knows that boasting in the wrong things never leads to joy. And Paul, he says, if you try to live boasting in yourself or your pedigree or your accomplishments, it will not work. He, he, and he essentially, in verse 4, he says, believe me, I tried. So look at verse 4. He, t- he tells the story of his life. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's looking back at his old life and saying, listen, I've got lots of confidence in the flesh. I've got a great resume. I come from the right family. I come from the right people. I have the best education, right? I'm a Pharisee. My job performance was through the roof. I was on the executive track in the Pharisaical movement, a rising star. I crushed the competition, literally. Paul was willing to lay down his life to wipe the early Christian movement off the face of the planet, if it came to that. And Paul's reminding the Philippians, he says, this was what my life was all about. I boasted in it, was defined by it. I put all my confidence in it until one day, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 9, until one day on the Damascus road, on my way to persecute Christians, I was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus road. And only then did I find the joy I was actually looking for all my life. Paul knows intimately the temptation we feel to boast in the wrong things. He lists his ethnic identity and his family pedigree first, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. Those, by the way, were, right, your, your family, your pedigree, your ethnicity, those were, were major temptations for people in the ancient world to root your identity in, like where you're from and who your family is really matters in traditional culture. Even today, that's true. Then he lists what we might call his accomplishments, right? He goes to his resume. His, he's a Pharisee. He's, uh, he's uh, zealous. He's a, he's a good Pharisee. He's blameless according to the law. We can boast in the wrong things too, like that. Sometimes it looks like pride, like it looks for Paul, I think, primarily. This was more his temptation. The I, I am good enough kind of boast. Here's what I've done. Be impressed with me. This is often accompanied by uh, judgmentalism, right? I'm better than, than you. I'm better than them. Rigidity, right? You, you've got it wrong. I've got it right. That was Paul for sure. But it can also look like despair, I think. The I, I'll never be enough boaster. It's just, it's, both are boasts and the wrong thing. I'll never be good enough, no matter what I do. And so you keep striving at what you think will bring that sense of sufficiency, whether that's your work at the expense of everything else, or you keep working for that like, physical beauty, that, that body, but time is always working against you. 
Or you strive perhaps for the perfect family. Meanwhile, you crush your family under the weight of your expectations of them. Now, Paul, the apostle, can look at any of all that and say, yes, I did that. I tried that. And none of it worked when I was confronted by the risen Jesus. It didn't work. And in an instant for Paul, he learns where joy is found and where he should boast. Because there's only one boast that leads to joy. This is kind of Paul's second point. And what follows here in verse 7 may be, at least for me, one of of the most compelling descriptions of the Christian life in the New Testament. So listen to this. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, right? Now referencing the list we just looked through. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's so much here we could talk about. But the one thing I want us to see here is Paul says, God found me. I did not find God. God found me. Therefore, I have no room to boast. God found me. In the midst of my boasting and my confidence in the flesh and my abilities and my religiosity and my pride and my career path, God found me. And now I boast in one thing. He says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That my is emphatic. Paul rarely talks about Jesus as my Lord. He says, our Lord, as he's talking to churches, right? But he says, my Lord. Not just knowing Jesus is Lord, Paul's boasting he's my Lord. Now, as far as I can tell, every worldview available to us outside of Christianity is essentially about finding the good life. Like, you go find it. If you come from the right place and you speak the right language and you do the right things and you believe the right things and you have the right ideas and you have the right friends, then maybe, just maybe, you can find God. God. But Paul knows, personally knows, that Jesus does not work that way. Jesus finds you. He finds you. And when he does, your boasting changes. As the old hymn puts it, I love how this hymn puts it. The things of earth, right? The things you live for, you strive for, that you're most proud of, that you give anything to get more of, they become strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. This is Paul's story. You boast in him now. Jesus, by the way, still finds people. (laughs) Maybe you are here and you think Jesus will never find me. I'm too far gone. I'm too far down. I'm too far away. Maybe you're struggling with the truth. Like, I don't know what's real. I don't know what to think of life and meaning and truth. Maybe you're in a depression. Or maybe... There's a secret in your life that you spend all your waking hours trying to not think about. And the thought that anyone, including Jesus, might find you there in that is absolutely dreadful to you. Listen, Jesus still finds people, even there, and he loves them and he forgives them. 
Part of the reason Paul points to himself as an example is that he, he is the lowest of the low. In some ways, Paul, you can't, right, you can't get farther from Jesus. He literally is on his way on the Damascus Road to go persecute and kill Jesus' people. He's a murderer. He's a terrorist. And Jesus finds him and changes everything. Jesus still finds people. Sometimes I need to remember that. He still finds people. Listen to this. This, this encouraged me. I, this, I was reading a story in First Things, and there's this guy. He wrote it like this week, this article. The whole thing is really just his testimony. His name is Paul Kingsnorth, and it's crazy. So he was an atheist, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, had no interest in God, grows up, works really hard, becomes a writer. He accomplishes a lot, but he says, I'm empty. The boasting doesn't work. So he tries uh, spirituality. He says, okay, I need something bigger than myself. So again, he, he says, I want nothing to do with Christianity. Right? He, he, he grew up in the UK, and he's just like, I want nothing to do with that. So he tries Zen Buddhism. And he says, you know, it did help me like, have better habits. Like I became a better person. But he says, I had no joy, no love, no compassion. Even when I was doing good things, it didn't, it didn't work. And so he, he, that doesn't work, so he becomes, get this, a priest in a Wiccan cult. He says, now I have something to worship, now I'll try something new. And he says, hey, it was actually going okay. Kind of got the good person part with the, you know, the transcendent metaphysical part. He says, but then one night I had a dream. And in that dream, I met Jesus. Want nothing to do with him. And Jesus essentially told them in so many words, you have spent enough time avoiding me. I'm coming for you. He says, I, I woke up, and here, listen to him. Suddenly I started meeting Christians everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork, strangers emailing me out of the blue, priests coming to me for help with their writing. I found myself having conversations with friends I'd never known were Christian who suddenly seemed to want to talk about it. An African man contacted me on Facebook. I love this to tell me he had had a dream in which God told him to convert me. It kept happening for months. Christ to the left of me, Christ to the right. It was unnerving. I turned away again and again, but every time I looked back, he was still there. I began to feel I was being hunted. I wanted it to stop. I had no interest in Christianity. I was a witch, a Zen witch, in fact, which I thought sounded pretty edgy. But I knew who was after me, and I knew it wasn't over. He ends this account. He's at his kid's music recital, and he has to leave the room because he says, I, became, I was overwhelmed by a sense of Jesus' love for me and everybody else in the room. And here's how he, here's how he ends it. He says, everything was unchanged, everything was unch and yet everything was new. And I knew what had happened and who had done it, and I knew that it was too late. I had just become a Christian. See, Paul, King's North, found no one and nothing on his spiritual journey. Nothing. Neither did Paul the Apostle, but somebody found him. And he has, he has nothing to boast in before Jesus, does he? No spiritual pedigree to impress Jesus with, no workplace accomplishment, no perfect home, no perfect life, no religious observance, no ritual purity to account for Jesus' love. He finds Jesus just loves him. And there is nothing to boast about there. 
except in that love. And that boast can give us a joy that even our own failure cannot take away. He still finds people. He still finds people. So I want us to ask ourselves three questions, okay? First, where is Jesus chasing you? Or is he pursuing you? You may be like the man in our story, and Jesus is literally chasing you to even believe in him in the first place. Maybe Jesus is chasing you by putting a bunch of Christians in your life, or you're, you're facing a, a deep dissatisfaction with what you've accomplished or what you've aimed your life at. It's not working anymore. Or perhaps you're wandering and you're aimless and you don't know. Maybe that's how Jesus is pursuing you. He won't leave you alone. Maybe there are difficult things in your life that what you used to deal with this way doesn't work anymore. The boast doesn't have the same effect. If you are here and you are (laughs) trying to run from Jesus and he's gotten you into this room, I think you're in big trouble. I don't think he's going to stop. Or is he chasing you? Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you love Jesus, but you don't, you're, you're running from, there's something in your life, you don't think he can love you that makes you run from him. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but it's a guilt or a fear or a shame, a disbelief. Maybe he's chasing you to actually confess to a trusted fellow believer what's going on, and to receive his love through them. That's not easy. That is is a dying to self. And yet, we have learned over and over in this letter that joy comes together in a community that never turns its back on one another. Maybe that's where he's chasing you, to receive his love and grace and forgiveness through someone else. Okay, where is he chasing you? And ask yourself, when are you going to stop? When are you going to stop running? It will not go well for you until you do. Second question, where do we need to consider gain to be loss? This is the other metaphor that Paul gives. Listen to verse 8 again. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is the, the metaphor almost of accounting. He, 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 he takes the accomplishments of his life, his strongest assets, everything he brings to the table as an individual and says that all goes in the lost column. And it's actually more than lost. Paul says it's actually rubbish, which is the English translation of a Greek word that's a, a known vulgarity in the ancient world. I'll let you decide how you think we would translate it into English. I don't think Paul is meaning it that strongly, but he is holding no punches. Here's what I think he's getting at. He's saying all of the success in my life that I pointed to, to justify myself apart from Christ, those things now are scraps to be thrown into the street. In other words, they are more than worthless. They are garbage that must be gotten out of your life, must be thrown into the street. So what gain in your life do you need to throw out and to put into the lost column compared to knowing Christ? What do you retreat to when you compare yourself to others? This is a a good diagnostic. Well, at least I'm not like that. Or yeah, they're good at this, but I'm actually better than them at this. Or how do you medicate yourself when you feel low? Do you find yourself going to your bank account? Like, oh, at at least that's good. 
your car, your house, your family, your kids. Those good things, okay, they're not bad things. But when we boast in them, when we look to them for affirmation or joy, they need to be thrown out. First of all, because they do not work. They don't work. But worse than that, they distract us from knowing Christ. This is actually, I think, Paul's overall point. Every moment that we turn to what I would now call an idol, something that distracts us from Jesus and his sufficiency, a false boast to worship and adore this thing, to, to find comfort and protection there, we, we miss an opportunity to find Christ sufficient in that part of our lives, to know him more, to trust him more. Jesus, who found us and who loves us and who gave himself up for us, it's not just wrong, it's stupid. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you settle for too little. This is why Paul, or he's talking to the Philippians and he's saying, it's as if he could look at these false teachers and say, circumcision? Really? You trade in knowing Jesus for circumcision? As Pastor Tom likes to say, that's not just stupid, that's dumb stupid. It's dumb stupid. Why would you do that? So whatever you find in your heart today, as you examine yourself, ask yourself, how does that compare to knowing the risen Lord Jesus? How does my salary compare to knowing the cosmic ruler of the universe who loves me and gave himself up for me? How does that compare? My, that letter grade, how does it compare? My sermon quality, how does that compare? See, I'll throw myself in there too. I'm not immune to this. And then find those things and count them as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus and turn to him. Okay. Where, do you, where are the gains in your life you need to count as loss? Okay, last question. What are the losses in your life you need to count as gain? This is where Paul goes next. When Paul talks about knowing Jesus more, more intimately, he says two things. He says, um, I want to know the power of his resurrection to which all of God's people say amen. Right, Paul says, I, the, the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, I want that in my life. To make me into the person God designed me to be in the first place. And that is a promise of the gospel. The power of his resurrection in your life now. But then he also says this in verse 10. I also want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. To which all God's people say, well, can we go back to the other part? But Paul knows and saw firsthand that part of the joy of choosing Jesus, of faith in Jesus, is actually living like Jesus, obeying him and trusting him, and yes, suffering for him. Paul is clear that to choose Jesus, there will be losses along the way. But Paul has begun to see them as gain, as a way to know Christ even more intimately. Now, I will confess to you that I, that is not intuitive for me, okay? I almost never think about suffering in this way as my first response to it. If you do, God bless you. That's great. You need to teach me. There's nothing, I think, intuitive about this for human beings. We, we think knowing Jesus means reading our Bible and praying and fasting and, and being in community and worshiping together, and that's true, that we do know Jesus through those things. 
But we rarely, I rarely say to myself, ah, yes, my health issues help me to know Christ. The reminder uh, that my, my growing sense of loss around my body is actually a gain in the economy of God. Or, or that my job issues are a way to know Jesus. Or that my children struggle, or my parents' illness, or my depression is actually a way to know him more. That doesn't mean we don't work to correct those things. It's not what I mean. That we don't seek to make them better. Okay, that's not what Paul means. But it does mean that we can rejoice even in our suffering because they bring us closer to Jesus who suffered all things for us. In Jesus' kingdom economy, loss, according to the world, can become gain if we let it. So what loss is Jesus showing you in your life is actually for your gain? It's actually for your benefit in some specific way, okay? I know that those are painful places. They are. Nothing confronts our boasting like suffering. Nothing confronts the boasting in your life you didn't know you had like suffering because it takes it away. And now suddenly it's like, ow, that hurts. That feels like dying to self. Well, yes, and when suffering is doing its work in our lives, yes, it does strip away our sense of comfort and control and self-sufficiency, but it leaves us with Jesus. It leaves us with a promise and power of his resurrection and his inexplicable and undeniable love for us. And there is a freedom Paul found that he wants the Philippian church to find and he... <laughs> And the Holy Spirit through him wants us to find. There is a joy in that boast. In Jesus and Jesus alone. That you will not find anywhere else. And listen. Ready or not. Jesus is coming for you. He's pursuing you. Will you turn to him and find joy? Let's, let's pray. Let's pray to him now. Father, I pray for each one in this room, for those who are, f who are following your son Jesus, who love him, however imperfectly, that we would begin to see in our callings, okay, every part of our lives, not only an opportunity to serve in your kingdom, but an opportunity to know your son Jesus more. In the good stuff and the hard stuff, that all things are about knowing him more. Give us a, a, the imagination and the vision for that tangibly this week. And for those in the room who do not yet know your son Jesus, who have not yet reckoned all gains as loss, I pray that they would meet him for who he really is through a conversation with a friend, through a prayer, through coming to church, reading their Bible. May they encounter the risen Jesus and experience this joy-filled life. It's in his powerful name we pray these things. Amen.